this episode, we are joined by Dr. Ruhama Weiss, Associate Professor at the Hebrew Union College, poet, artist, feminist and activist. Thanks for joining me today. Tell me, how are you dealing with the current situation personally? Most of the time staying at home, but I'm not very good at staying at home. So I find my excuses like going to buy unnecessary stuff at the pharmacy or going to not the nearest supermarket or things like that because I love breaking the rules and I can't stay at home for too long. Rules are there to be broken, are they? Yeah, definitely. Yes. And I love doing that. Actually, I I realized that I'm becoming depressed when I'm not breaking laws. So rules. So I have to break rules. Even when I believe in the that the rules are good, I have to break them. And you see, are you, do you see people? Are there people walking around in Jerusalem? Are there people walking the streets or not really? Nowadays, a lot. From the last week till yesterday, a lot of people are walking and also using, like me, train and buses. But before that, yes, people are always walking. Even today, it was really forbidden to walk. We are, yes, we are walking. Mm-hmm. Families, kids, yes, people with a lot. Big families, they have to go out. I've seen you referred to as a professor of Talmud. Is that true? And how do you become a professor of Talmud? (laughs) Yes, it is true. It's surprising also for me. Not the Talmud, but the professor is a huge surprise in my life. The Talmud is much, a little more obvious because I like breaking rules. And I was born and raised in an Orthodox family, an Orthodox community. And one of the rules was that we are forbidden, as women, we are forbidden to learn Talmud. So it was very clear to me that I'm going to learn Talmud. And then I had to do that at the university because I couldn't do it any other place because any Orthodox place wouldn't let me learn Talmud. So I went to the university and eventually I find myself being professor of Talmud. So this is what happened. But at the beginning, I just did it because they said, the rabbi said that I can't do that, that it is forbidden. But then I was lucky enough to find out that it is great literature, that I really love it. And it is so fascinating and crazy and very much different from anything you can expect from Talmud. So it was, I chose something great, but it became as rebellion. But then I find that I really love it. And I have a a lot of passion to studying Talmud. You are working at the Hebrew Union, which is a reform seminary, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you're not. Isn't there a thing with reform Judaism and the Talmud, seeing the Talmud as not being, whether it's not important or not being an authority, that that Reform Judaism sees the Talmud differently? I would say the beginning of the Reform movement, the movement was really against the notion of halakha. And the Talmud is also the symbol of halakha, but all the beginning of the halakha is in the Talmud, but the Talmud is not only about halakha. Even though when the Reform movement was against preserving the halakha, The movement was not against studying history and literature and the notions that the halakha is based on. Nowadays, the the reform movement is not against referring to the halakha or being obliged to 
halachic ideas and deeds, but most of us, and I can speak about myself, we are not obligated to the halacha. But some of my friends, reform friends, are obligated in, you know, different levels to the halacha. They don't drive on Shabbat, they eat kosher food. But the Talmud is really not only, or I would dare to say not even mainly about halachic issues. This is the bad reputation of the Talmud, that it is a halachic book, but it is not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's on Reformed Jews, whatever side of the coin Reformed Jews are, either way, it's on the Jewish bookshelf. Like it's there as an extremely important resource. Yeah whether it's considered to be uh, a halachic authority or not. Even if you don't want to be halachic, and if you, even if you are, as the first reforms were anti-halachic, you have to understand the notion of halacha in order to fight against it, in order to break the halachic rules. You have to understand halacha. And there is no way to understand halacha without understanding Talmud, and the Talmud, as I said, is not about halacha. You can find also, of course, a lot of halachic debates, halachic discourse in the Talmud, but it is not about that and mainly not about certain ways to preserve the halacha or to obey the halacha. It's not, it's not there. It's not about specific halachic practices. It's more about building the halachic world and about ideas related to the halacha, but it's not about the practice. Mm -hmm. I'm sensing a theme already. Okay. The first thing that you talked about was going out into the streets and breaking rules. The second thing you talked about was uh, as a woman learning the Talmud, and breaking rules, societal rules. And the third thing you talked about was breaking halakha. It seems to me and sounds to me that you've got a thing about breaking rules. Yes, I do have. <laughs> I was born and raised in the Orthodox world and I left the Orthodox world and I hate rules. Uh -huh. I love, you have to have rules in order to break them. So I love breaking rules. Till now, you know, I didn't get over that. The need to go against what I was told that I have to do and against the world that was working so hard in order to tell me exactly, even I think almost how to breathe, what to eat, what not to eat, when to eat, what to do when I wake up, how to get dressed, uh, what I can say, what I can learn, what I can't learn. I left the Orthodox world more than 30 years ago, and I still love breaking rules. I can't avoid It's fun. <laughs> Most history books are written by men and are about men, usually overlooking the role of women. There's a rich history of women Talmudic scholars. I'm thinking of Bruria and Yalta, who are both mentioned in the Talmud itself. Do you feel you are part of a legacy of Jewish women challenging the patriarchy in Jewish scholarship? I like to think about myself as in that way, but it's an honor. I'm not sure I deserve, but I can also say that Bruria and Yalta are challenging patriarchy in very different ways because Bruria was a real Jewish scholar and she wanted to be like the boys, like the Beit Midrash scholars, like the rabbis. So she studied really hard, much harder than all the rabbis. 
and she was maybe the great scholar in her uh, generation. Nevertheless, she couldn't be a real part of the Beit Midrash. So she was struggling and struggling and struggling, and she was really smart, talented, educated, but she didn't fit. She couldn't fit. They didn't let her fit. The end of her story, at least as we are told from Rashi from the 11th century, is that she committed suicide. And this is a terrible way to end your life. But she didn't fit. The whole way she didn't fit. And Yalta is a different story because Yalta, I think around 200 years after Bruya in Babylon, Yalta was not a scholar. She was very smart. She challenged the rabbis all the time, but she refused to learn their traditions their Torah, their ideas, their halachot. She refused to study that. She challenged them, but with her own ideas, with her own wisdom, without quoting from their tradition or from any other tradition. She was too smart and too experienced to try to do what Bruya tried to do. But both of them, you know, they didn't really, they were alone. They were not part of any study house, of any group. They didn't fit the women's groups. They didn't fit the Beit Midrash, the rabbis, the sages. I think they were very lonely, very sad at the end. And they both teach us that there is no place for women like them, no place in the world. What do you mean there's no place in the world for women like them? Because they they didn't know how to be like other women. They didn't know how to fit the place that the patriarchy, the rabbis, everybody want them to fit. They didn't know how not to ask questions, how not to desire for more, to ask for more that they can get. They didn't know how to be submissive. They couldn't. I believe that they tried, that they wanted to be, you know, normal, that they wanted to fit. They wanted to feel like they understand the world and there is a place in the world for them, but they couldn't. So they tried to do something else and maybe someone will accept them to another place, to another group, to maybe the scholars will agree to let them join to let them be part of patriarchy, maybe, or to change something in patriarchy at the same time that they will join the patriarchy, but they, no one let them do that. So they didn't really, basically, they didn't have place in the world. Mm-hmm. And where, in those same questions, where would you place yourself in terms of trying to put yourself into the man's realm field of, you know, study and and scholarship or whether you're rejecting that place and creating a different space? Like what are the things that you are maybe learning from either trying to be part of that world or trying to create an alternative to that world? You know, I'm privileged in many ways because I was born in the era of feminism. So I'm not that alone and I can't complain that much because I never suffered as Boya suffered or I never suffered, Yalta suffered, or I don't have to pay the price that they had to pay because I can find my friends that are fighting patriarchy side by side with me 
as we both went to Cyprus together and we fight patriarchy together. And, you know, I was not alone there and I'm not alone when I'm struggling against evil rules or for women, for kids that are suppressed by patriarchy. Even though it is not easy even today, but it is not as hard as it was at the first centuries. And the second thing is that I was born not only in the right time, but also in quite right place. I mean, even though Israel has a lot of problems, it is not like growing up in a third world country. So from both points of view, I'm privileged and I'm aware of that. And I bless God every day for that. We're going to spend a bit of time talking about the case of the young British woman that was held by the authorities in Ayanapa for lying after accusing a group of Israeli youths of gang raping her. Do you remember when you first heard about the case and what went through your mind? Yeah, the first round was, I think, when the boys were jailed because the the police believed the truth that she was gang raped by 12 of them. And then we heard that five of them were released because they were not in the room at that time or they didn't find evidence on her body. They didn't find their sperm on her body. So five of them were released. And, you know, it was so simple, so obvious that that was really what happened because, you know, we know about what unfortunately boys can do in vacations like that. And we know Ayanapa does have the reputation of that kind of place. And so I was not surprised. And then it was so shocking and surprising to hear that the official announcement was that they were released because she was lying and they tried decided to lock her and to send them free to Israel. And then I saw the celebrations at Ben Gurion Airport. And that was too much. I think that this was their huge mistake. Their huge mistake? The boys' huge mistake to celebrate like it was a huge victory. Because we all knew at the time that maybe they didn't rape the young lady. But even though if formally they didn't rape her, they did terrible things. There is nothing to celebrate. Even if you can't call it rape officially, they did ugly things there. So they were celebrating something terrible. And for me, the worst was that they were wearing yarmulkes. They they were wearing kippot and singing religious songs. And I couldn't stand that. I couldn't bear it. I was having the feeling that they are raping my God also, my religion, that they're raping the Torah. It was like another rape. Mm -hmm. Not as bad as the first one, but it was, I was so ashamed. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know anything about, you know, the real story. I just heard that what all of us heard on all the channels in Israel, that she was lying and they didn't rape her. So I believed it as afterwards I understood that what happened to me was what is usually happening in events like that, is that it is much more tempting to believe that nothing happened, not because they are Israelis, because if they did rape her, so I have to do something. So then I have to raise from my chair and do any kind of act to support her. 
But if they didn't, so everything is okay. So I can relax. So I can watch TV. So I can go on with my normal life. Judith Harman wrote about it in her very important book, Trauma and Recovery. And she said that we tend to stand with the offender because then we don't have to do anything. We just have to believe that he's right. But if we will decide to stand with the victim, then we have to do something. Then we have to act. Then we have to contribute money. Then we have to fly. Then we have to work hard. Then we have to give a shelter. Then we have to do a lot of things. It is much easier always in any political event, in any political crime to get as far as you can from the victim and stay with the criminals, with the offenders. And that was my first reaction. And then I understood how easy, how automatically it is that we choose to stand with the offenders, that we choose the wrong position, that we choose the wrong side. Because I also did that at the beginning because it was so easy, it was so comfortable to believe them and not to believe her. And was not to believe them, it was to believe the police, it was to believe the court, it was to believe the journalists, the Israeli journalists. At the beginning, they were standing with the boys. One of them even was dancing with the boys. So it was much more comfortable to believe them. And it was my automatic reaction to the story. Okay, she was lying. Everything is good. I can go, you know, I can change channel. I can read books. I can go to my coffee place as always. I can work. I can do things normally. Things can go back to order. As you said, it's uh, believing the system as well. And as a, a rule, as a rule breaker, it also doesn't necessarily come that naturally to you at all to believe the system and to say, well, actually, no. What will happen to me the minute I will come back to my knowledge and to my wisdom and understand that you can never trust the system. But for a moment, at least, for a few days, you want to believe the system because it is so easy and so warm and so warm and cozy to believe the system. It is great to believe the system. It is comfortable and comforting and you feel strong and you feel part of something and you're not alone and you're not Gloria and you're not Yalta. You are part of a huge group of people. And you are together and you are, you can be proud to be part of that group of people. So for, I was not proud, you know, but for some time it was so okay and so pleasant and to believe the system. And the system was so strong. So I didn't even think about it. I just went on doing other things. It was like non-issue anymore. Can you pinpoint maybe something specific from your Judaism, understanding Jewish values, Jewish tradition, maybe, that enabled you to see uh, the truth in that moment when you realized that you couldn't just sit by and assume that these boys were innocent? Like, was there something, could you pinpoint something specifically that you took inspiration from? At the beginning is an intuition. Is It will never come from the tradition, from text. I, I think that the beginning, at least for me, is always by intuition. And then I will go back to the Jewish tradition and text 
in order to find comfort and support there. And this is very easy, of course, because there's a big emphasis on believing the stranger, helping the stranger, standing with the stranger, and also being responsible for your neighbor and loving your neighbor and fighting for the truth. And I think mainly do not stand on the blood of your friend. I think that this is the most important, relevant rule in the Bible, that you can't, if you see someone that he's bleeding and really bleeding, suffering, she was literally bleeding, But suffering, you can't ignore it. You can't just stand on the blood and you are standing there not being aware of the fact that you're standing on a blood, of, on the blood of someone. You're not aware of that. You don't care. You don't see it. You just carry on regardless. Yeah. And that was something that I can really relate to when I think of what happened there, that they were... They were dancing on her blood, but we were standing on her blood. We were just looking on the other side, not caring for the truth and for her. I mean, it's almost like co collective responsibility. It's like saying that you're either part of the problem or part of trying to find the solution. Yeah, exactly. I love quote it a lot. You know, when I thought about it again, so I, understa I understood that I can't be bystander in this story. I have to understand that if I'm not part of the solution, so I'm part of the problem. And I will not agree to be part of the problem. So I have to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. There's no other place in the world. Mm -hmm. I don't remember who said that, but in crimes like this, there is no one can be neutral. If you are neutral, you are a viewer. You're sitting like you're viewing something. You're not neutral. This is very important to say. You can say that you don't have color, that you don't take a side in this story, because by not taking a side, you're taking. Mm -hmm. You've already mentioned it, but I also, I had actually a physical response. I uh, felt sick to my stomach when I saw those Israelis dancing, arriving back in Israel in the summer after being released by the Cypriot authorities and singing and dancing. And my first response was, this isn't my Israel. And it was so obvious to me that they are not the Israeli heroes that some quarters were making them out to be. I was ashamed, uh, ashamed at what they'd done, but also ashamed that rape culture in Israel seemed to be, to me, to be so normalized. Uh, I also know that I was mostly thinking about them, about the perpetrators. I was disgusted with their behavior, um, but I was less thinking about the victim sitting alone in that cell. Do you think the conversations that were sparked about toxic masculinity in Israeli society were the right conversations to be having, or was everyone missing the point in terms of forgetting about the victim? I think that we have to speak about both sides. It's not one or the other. And it is deeply connected because she was sitting in jail because of their masculinity, because the way that they, because of the rape culture. So we have, and we have to deal with both of them. And even though I think that the victim is the, the, the British girl, But of course, that they are also in a way victims. I don't want to clear them, but they are victims of the rape culture, of our culture, of patriarchy. They are also victims. They didn't do it 
because it was just their crazy, strange idea that I don't know what happened to them that they came with, up with that terrible idea. I know exactly how it happened. I know I understand. I know who are the models for that. I know how deep it is connected to the army and to the ways that we see masculinity and the way we treat boys in Israel. So they are also victims and we have to understand them and we have to heal them as well. I'm against shaming them. I don't want to chase after them. I think that they have to come out and they have to come clean in this story. I, I think that they have to admit and then of course that they have to be punished. But this is not the story. The story is not about punishing them. This will not end that culture. What will help us put an end to this culture is understanding the roots of their behavior and trying to deal with it. And it is... You see it as a, the militaristic society and the messages that these men grew up with, the expectations, put them in a place to, to make these choices? Or are you saying it's not even their choices, they're just pieces in a society that directs them to do these terrible things? The older I get, the less I believe in free choice. So I don't think that they choose, you know, freely to rape that young lady. I think that they were raised in culture that helped them do that terrible decision, that showed them the way to make terrible decisions regarding girls and sex and sexuality. And it was not their idea. We showed them the way, their families, their environment, the education, Israel, world culture, movies, TV, we all show them the world, the way, and we are all part of rape culture, and we can't escape from it, we can't avoid it. We are responsible, and chasing them will not help us. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to chase them. I'm going to fast forward from the summer five months, New Year's Day 2020, your post on Facebook somehow appeared on my feed. I still don't know exactly how. And it had a huge effect on me. And this is what you wrote, quote, and finally I said to myself, look, what are you going to gain for the price of one session of therapy? In therapy, it is possible and right to talk about the dreadful experience of being silenced, but not being able to say stop, of them not believing me, my story of being broken, shattered and defenseless. And here, at the cost of one therapy session, and about 24 hours, I can do the real thing. I can fix it. I, who am older, can stand side by side with a young woman, oppressed, silenced, wounded in body and mind, and say, our sister, you, no more. We are not willing to be part of the circle of silence. We are part of the circle of trust, the circle of transparency. We believe in you and surround you in lo with love. Within a week, there were 60 Israelis with you outside that courtroom in Cyprus. What made you decide you wanted to be there at her sentencing? And how did you actually feel to be outside that courthouse with a large group of Israelis that had traveled with you? I don't know what made me, made me decide that because I really can't recall the moment when I decided to do that. It was just suddenly I knew that I have to be there. And I have to be there not because it's 
you know, the right thing to do or because of justice. I had the feeling that it will be for me unbearable not to be there, that the price of not being there will be much higher than the price of being there, that I, it, it was just inevitable. It was something that I couldn't do any any other thing, any other way, I had to go there in order, I think, to relieve the pain that I felt. It was like healing myself, curing myself, or even less than that, just maybe not getting crazy, not losing myself. It was like I will not be able not to be there. It was too much. Not The suffering was too much if I won't go there. I couldn't choose. It was just something that I felt and I had to do. And then I thought that I'm going to be there alone. And I posted at the beginning a very short post saying, I'm going there. Who is Who wants to join me? And then the second post was the one that you read. And I gave also some technical details and that way it was much easier for people to join me because you get all the technical details and you realize that it is so close and so cheap. And for once you can do the right thing. You can scream. You can be there for her. You can support her. You can really, really change the way things are going the way that they treat her. You can change it. So it was, the feeling was great. And the moment that I cherish, the moment that I take with me, it was not a moment. It was something like an hour. It was when we were standing there near the courthouse, screaming, really screaming, but it was nice. It was not a mess. It was very, I would say, even in a way full of life. And even, it's not nice to say, but in a way joyful, because we were so happy and proud of ourselves that for once we can do it. We will not let that girl go to jail again. We will fight for her. No one fought for us and we will fight for her. And that was a moment, the situation was bad. But even though I was happy, I was full of life, full of energy. And I felt that maybe the first time in my life, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Because I always wanted to scream, but I couldn't. And now it was the right place, the right time with the right people. And we were screaming together and was so empowering. So it was it was a great opportunity. It's fascinating because it's clear to me that your deep desire was to stand with this woman who had been treated terribly by all the way through from the Israelis to the system to you name it and to be with her and stand with her and to be there for her. But a lot of what you're saying, both in terms of your personal, uh, what you were thinking for yourself and for the group of people that were there, it was also for you and for them to be there. Obviously. And I think that this is what made it so special, that at the same time, we're 100% for her, but also it was very clear to me that I'm screaming for myself. And I think that almost everyone in the group was screaming for the one, also for the one time that he wanted other people to scream for him or her, and they didn't. No one stand for us, but now we can stand for someone else. 
And it was like standing for the young me also. So it was like I'm holding her and I'm also holding myself. And I'm also holding her mother that she is around my age. And we decided to be together. We decided to be responsible for each other. What you're saying is you're shouting for all those times that you didn't shout and you were shouting also we were shouting also for all those times that maybe are to, are to come that we want to be shout be able to shout and be there for each other yeah also for all the times that I wanted other people to shout for me yeah because I was too young to shout for myself but no one did that because it was there was different times you know no one stood for us and I don't blame anyone it was impossible but now it is the beginning of new era and it is possible it was so strong to have that feeling that we will not let her suffer more than she suffered already we will not let that happen it was strong I had the feeling that was powerful mm-hmm. I want to finish off with with one of your poems you're also after all a poet and I'd like you uh, we've chosen a poem in advance and I'd like you to please read it in the original Hebrew and then I'll I'll read it in English the name of the poem is Letamet Asheretz and the quote at the beginning is Talmid Vatik Haya Beyavne Shia Metaheret Asheretz Bemea Vachamishim Teamim Talmud Bavli Eruvin Yud Gimel Amud Bet Kaele Matsati Rabim Gam Ben Haverai Vanyadai Mechapeset Etaechad Shedaletamet Asheretz Betam Echad Baemet A respected scholar of Yavne was able to declare pure even the most impure thing In 150 different ways. I know people like this, even among my friends, but I'm still looking for the one person who knows how to declare the impure pure with one strategy, the truth. I wanted to ask you, I guess the final question is, what is the truth that you're looking for? I think that the truth that we both find in our standing in Cyprus Just to say the simple thing that you see and you understand, not to be afraid to see what you see and to declare that what you see is the truth and there is nothing sophisticated that you have to look for. It is just as simple as saying what you really feel and what you really see. But this is so difficult because the system tries to teach us that we don't understand what we see. And we don't understand what we feel. So now we have to go back to our basic feelings and senses and to believe ourselves to begin with. It's intuitive. Yeah, it is intuitive. Well, Kamal, I want to thank you so, so much for talking to me. Fascinating, really interesting and enlightening. Thank you. Thank you, Anton. It was great talking to you and great being with you in Cyprus. <laughs>